The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamu alaikum everyone and welcome to Sister Speak with me Louisa. And me Marion. Welcome back Louisa. Thank you. It's been a very long time and I'm a bit you know no guys show her some love she's amazing a bit nervous people are probably like who even is she no <laughs> we're glad so. to have her back oh thank you um so yeah we with sister speak thank you for joining us and marion would you like to say what our show's about so our show is a platform for muslim girls to voice their own opinions on current events and issues and even form discussions on general topics such as religion culture and politics and social media we want to note that all opinions and views are our own and we respect all other or opposing views yeah so um, today our main topic is going to be on Islamophobia in the workplace and that's quite a big oops, <laughs> that's quite a big uh, topic I'd say right yeah um, so yeah we do luckily have a few guests on who will hopefully be joining us soon um, but yeah before we go into that would you like to quickly say a thought of the week? So, a thought of the week before that, thought of the week is a segment on our show yep. that is uh, something that we share, um, something that inspired us, something beneficial, and something maybe we've just been thinking about. I'll keep my thought of the week short because we're going to have um, some guests later on our show. Um, my thought of the week is just keep working hard. Mm-hmm. Keep working hard, but work smart. I think there's a line between working hard and working smart, and I think for me personally, um, I've been always a hard worker. I really like to work hard. I really like to uh, work towards my goals. But I realized that, you know, you don't have to put you, something that you could do in 20%. Mm-hmm. Why would you go 80%? So, for example, say you uh, you're, you have an exam and you have a specific topic. Why would you revise eight, all the other topics that are not going to come in? Yeah rather than just focusing and going on depth, um, that 20%. So in that sense, I think this year, I really want to focus on building strategies um, to work effectively. Pretty pretty solid thought of the week, I'd say, yeah. I think we can all live by that. So, um, yeah, I, I'll skip over mine, <laughs> I don't, to be honest, yeah. Um, so we are going to be joined by a guest right now. Her name is Naz Shah. She's a Member of Parliament for Bradford West, uh, the Labour sh- Labour Shadow Minister for Women and Equalities and the Vice Chair All Party Parliamentary Group. So, um, yeah, uh, Assalamu alaikum, Naz. How are you doing? <laughs> Pleasure Hi, to have you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Um, so, yeah, today our topic is on Islamophobia uh, in the workplace, which is quite a, quite a broad topic, I'd say. Um, I guess first things first that we'd like to talk about is basically what is Islamophobia? Because it's quite um, blurry, I guess, in that sense. So maybe personally to you, what is Islamophobia? So we've just, um, it's a timely question actually, Mm -hmm. so we've just, not just, but since November, launched a definition on Islamophobia, so I'm a member of the All-Party Parliamentary Group, um, and we launched the definition in November after a long consultation, and Islamophobia, so so the definition is, Islamophobia is rooted in racism, is a type of racism, and um, the word is... Uh, um, attacks Muslimness or uh, perceived Muslimness. I don't know what that means. I, I keep forgetting that middle word. But basically, it's talking about it's rooted in racism. Mm-hmm. The reason we say 
it's rooted in racism is simply because if we look at discrimination, yeah. if we look at workplace discrimination, and the fact that um, the Women in Select Committee's report highlighted that if you if a Muslim if well if you wear a hijab, you're eighty five percent less likely to get a job. If you um, have a Muslim sounding name, you know we we know racism to be that to be discrimination. Mm. So this Islamophobia is what is um, what's happening to Muslims right now. You've been overrised. So you're less likely to get a job. You're less likely, you know, you're talked about in the media all the time. You've got false um, stuff out there. That's what we understand to be racism. So Islamophobia is a type of racism. Okay. Over to that, when we talk about Muslimness, what we mean really is and perceived Muslimness is Islamophobic attacks don't just happen on Muslims because we've had in America a Sikh guy was killed outside Parliament, uh, a guest who, you know, turban wearing Sikh, he had his um, t turban pulled off. Uh, we've had people, we've had research which has shown that men who wear beards, regardless of their faith, have been uh, attacked because they're perceived to be Muslim. Mm. Uh, the truth is, when anybody, a victim, is, um, you know, it, any victim who is subject to an Islamophobic attack and they experience that, and nobody's ever stopped them and asked them what their, their theological beliefs are mm. or whether they're actually a Muslim. It's about them being perceived to be a Muslim. Perceived as Muslim or based off their appearance. So, so it's not just about... Um, because Islamophobia doesn't just happen to Muslims. Yeah. And we've got to accept that Islamophobia happens to people who are non-Muslim but uh, and who are perceived to be Muslim. Yeah. Or their Muslimness. So even if you're even if you're doing anything, so, so for example, if you're supporting, um, if you look on Twitter and you're supporting something that is in support of Muslims, then you get lots and lots of Islamophobia and um, stuff on your Twitter feed or your Facebook page. You know, so it's that's what we're saying. Uh, so that's my understanding of Islamophobia. Yeah. And Islamophobia checks all guises and shapes. Um, whether it's the, you know, the uh, overt racism, which is if you look at Twitter and you kind of, you know, you get the, the overt references to religion, uh, continuously being attacked, how profit these people on in, you know, that that kind of um, language that is used, that your, you know, your um, profit is this, you, are, you, you belong to a religion that does this, you belong to all of that kind of stuff. And then there's the overt things, which are well, if you're going to if you wear a hijab, you might not get a job, or if you wear a beard, you're less likely to get interviewed, or you have a Muslim founding name, you might you know um, you might not get a job interview. So I guess in that in that sense, it's quite it's very broad, but at the same time, it's really deep. It's like rooted in so many different um, aspects, and it can occur from so many different angles. Marion, what about? Yeah, you? I was just going to ask um, this. The whole point of Muslim perceived, um, you talked about being Muslim and then people perceiving other people to be Muslim and then being attacked for that purpose. And um, I just want to ask, what? how would you describe racism? Because it's it's such a big umbrella term and I feel like it's it's really hard to identify when, when you're um, being uh, mm. thrown with racism, racist com comments. Okay, so what we what we, so there's two things. So Muslims can be can be if you happen to be of a colour. Um, so if you if it's certain be to be black, or if you happen to be of um, of um, you know. So if you happen to be brown, if you happen to be non-white, um, you know, um, people of 
uh, colour. So you have what what happens is you can have a double whammy. So you can have racism, which is overt racism, which is your black or Asian. And then you have if you own a hijab, you can have Islam. So it can be racism is racism. And then you can also so Islamophobia is rooted in racism. It's a type of racism. Mm. So when you're when you're if you've got the hijab, if it, for example, if a girl is walking along and she has a hijab pulled off, it's because she's 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 viewed to be a Muslim. She's perceived as Muslim, and that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And that can take any shape shape of you know it can be taken in any way any way. It's, it's about it's, it's never it's about how the person has impacted upon and how they feel. What why were they attacked? Was it because they were black? Was it because they were Muslim? You know, if, if they were visibly Muslim, you know. Yeah, I have a question for you. Um, so, say for example, you are at an interview and you get rejected. Or, how do we perceive and how do we know and identify whether we have been um, attacked because of Islamophobia? And how do we identify it? Because the line's quite blurred. No, it's it's difficult to exactly pinpoint what becomes Islamophobia. Because, to my understanding, there'll be covert. Islamophobic comments or um, attacks. So how um, I'm not sure whether so there's laws example, to protect. Okay, so, um, so if I'm, we look at employment law, if we look at so, so we already have equality law. Yeah. So in the case of you were going to go for a job, mm. and you went, you did not make the shortlist, and you made you you feel that you were qualified and you were more than qualified for the job, then you would ask for feedback. Then you could ask for how many people were of a particular race and if you had um if you were treated differently you know the act of discrimination we're already protected religion is a characteristic that mm. is protected under equality law in any case when we're talking about islamophobia islamophobia is, is very is much more um of right now is the overization of muslims that has seen tend to workplace that has seen tend to you know way way past the dining table like Baroness Varsi's infamous mm. now infamous um, uh, speech in 2011. So you can ask, you can use equality legislation to ask the question, because if you if you don't get if you don't get shortlisted, you can literally ask why didn't I get shortlisted? You want feedback? You can then ask the question, well, how many people did get shortlisted? You know, and then if you've got so many people shortlisted and you weren't shortlisted, and they were less qualified, then you can ask for that information mm. without without identifying because firms, especially the public sector, um, are obliged to give you that information. Well, you know, if you if you feel that you've been discriminated against, you can raise the question. And does that apply to the private sector as well? In terms of the private sector, religion is covered. It is absolutely covered. And race is covered. And it would be, there hasn't been a case that I'm aware of yet, but I don't see why you couldn't. Mm-hmm. I think that's but this important. definition is not a legal framework. So in that case, and in so in the case of a legal issue, you would re- revert back to the equalities legislation. This is about the framework that we've done. The APPG definition is about giving the whole concept of Islamophobia a deeper understanding mm. to understand that this actually does exist in society. And we need to address it. Because I think that, that was going to lead on to my next question. How important is it actually to have a definition uh, of Islamophobia that, you know, Muslims in general agree with and then to push that forth and that people can actually stand by? So how important is well, it that this definition sort of gets 
um, passed through. Extremely important. So, so this definition, it's not about being passed through. What this definition is, it's not a legal. It's, it's not a legal law that we're passing. Yeah, we no, already have or accepted in general, I guess. So, so accepted and adopted. What we want it to be is adopted by the current. Uh, so the, we want it adopted by the current Conservative Party. Mm. I'm really pleased to say, you know, the, the this definition has the broadest, uh, absolute broadest def, uh, support from the Muslim community, mm. from the mainstream Muslim community, over 80 academics, over 800 organisations. And we have, you know, we, we the APPG affords that credibility of, you know, this definition coming from the community. And it's been consulted on widely from people across up and down the globe, uh, you know, up and down the country, sorry. And it's important because the Labour Party has um, taken a stance and adopted it. Uh, you know, I've met with um, unions just, uh, just this afternoon or this morning, rather, you know, to talk about the definition. Uh, to talk about them potentially adopting it, we've got. I've been talking to the universities to adopt it, because by adopting it, what we're saying is is that yes, we acknowledge it exists, but B, more importantly, we'd like to understand how it manifests. Mm. And you know, so those examples in the definition are really important to read, so we can then deal with it. Because you could, you could we've got a problem, but we need to understand. We uh, first step is in acknowledging we have a problem which, you know, just over a year ago, the minister in the Conservative Party didn't even think we needed a definition. Now we've got to a position where they, they accept we need a definition. That's brilliant. You know, we, but the, they just don't accept the definition that's come from the actual Muslim community, which is, a, which is an absolute shame. Um, how would you encourage uh, Muslim um, Muslims to report Islamophobic attacks or... Or to sort of overcome Islamophobia, yeah, perhaps, that they've faced. OK, so in terms of reporting, there's the IRU, the Islamophobic, uh, Islamophobic Response Unit, uh, which is the uh, reporting unit, sorry, which is led by MEND. It's, a, it's a one of MEND's arm, um, Muslim Engagement and Development Network. Um, they really, really do a lot of work on this issue. That's one of the ways. But there is the other way, which is directly reporting to the police as a hate crime and getting the police to take it seriously. Because in, um, in Luton, you do have, you come under Bedfordshire Police. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bedfordshire Police is led by, uh, the chief constable is uh, John Boucher. And I personally know, because, know him because I work with him on the National mm-hmm. Roundtable for Policing and Race and Religion. So he's very, very committed to this agenda. So you, you've got your police force that you need to be reporting it to. You can report it through the... If people don't feel confident going direct to the police, they can use, you know, local advocates, which, you know, you can find through the IRU. Mm. And I haven't got the website to hand, but if people Google MEND, um, IRU, the Islamophobic Reporting Unit, um, they can they can get they can get all the information from there. Sure. Sure. So you talk about reporting it to the police, but... My question is, when you report it to the police, what happens next? Because a lot of people might have fears and hesitation to um, report it to police as they don't know what would happen next. So could you just shed some light on that? Well, it, depends, it depends on the nature of the attack. Well, it depends on the nature of... So if you have an Islamophobic attack, which is you know, really, really clearly, uh, as somebody being, you know, like the video that we saw that on Channel 4, where a girl was going about a business, walking down towards the tube, a guy just walked past and literally kicked her and she fell down 
really, really kicked her in the back very deliberately. Wow. She fell down. I think she broke a leg or something or an arm. Yeah, that was an Islamophobic attack, an unprovoked attack, and that was mm-hmm. really, really straightforward. It was so straightforward. It was, it was, you know, a grievous bodily harm or whatever it was that he got charged with. There was nothing. That there was no. It really, really does depend on the nature of what what you're reporting, because obviously there's there's the Islamophobic attacks, but there's also understanding Islamophobia in the mm-hmm. context of the workplace, in the context of our daily lives of not being able to get a job, or you know, we we took evidence and we had uh, a chap who'd gone, whose wife had got him an insurance quote and she'd put in his nickname, and they asked him to put. He said, "Oh, I better get my real full name in." And when he put his full name in, which was a Muslim name, his premium went up by 400. Mm. And that that was real evidence that we took during this inquiry. Mm. So you've got to, you know, you've got to understand that actually it's not just about the overt and stuff that you feel, but it's actually when you're putting your name into a computer and that is worrying because that is structural. And there are things about, you know, whether you can, whether you, you know, structural racism, it's no different to how black people were treated many, many years ago. They were, you know, and that right now, the uprising, we had, in this country, we have a history where, you know, at one point it was the Irish, then it was the blacks, you know, now it's the Muslims, mm. Muslims are the new blacks. But but that's quite scary, isn't it, if you put it into, if it's if it's being programmed in a way, um, that if you have a, a Muslim name, you know, your fee goes up or, or things like that. So I guess in, in that sense it is more important that a, a definition for Islamophobia be established as quick as possible. Right? And I think uh, what we should do is take the onus and try to learn what the definition is and, you know, people like you that are promoting this and, you know, telling us where to go to um, protect ourselves and, you know, know our rights. Absolutely, we've got to look. Men, men do some amazing work in the community of raising people's training and awareness around Islamophobia. I'm sure you'd have somebody in Luton, and if not, reach out to the organisation. I'm sure they'd be happy to host something in Luton um, should you need it. I think it's important that we recognise Islamophobia for what it is. It is a hatred. It is. It is um, not. It is, it, there's no room for it in society and we need to root it out and the, the unfortunate thing is that we have a political party in government you know who I feel is which is absolutely institutionally Islamophobic and that doesn't help because then um, you know if you if you have somebody who's you know potentially going to be our next prime minister and calls them Asian women in the garbage burgers and uh, you know in burgers mm. letterboxes and bank robbers and that kind of language, then I'm afraid I I'm not optimistic, mm-hmm. um, which is why we have to do as much as we can in re- in terms of raising awareness, etc. Right. Um, well, Nasha, thank you very much uh, for joining us today and giving the information that you did, because I'm sure loads of people out there didn't know that so many lines are available had they experienced, um, you know, uh, Islamophobia. But yeah, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, yeah, if and you we look have... at Islamophobia and then if you Google the Islamophobia definition, APPG, there's lots and lots of links of who's endorsed it, what it means. What There's a brilliant video on there which explains that first question about racism mm-hmm. on their mm-hmm. Facebook page, about, you know, we, what we understand to racism is and why this is racist. Sure. You know, what's rooted in racism. Okay. Okay, thank you, Nasha. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. much. Thank you. Thank you.
Okay, so that was Nasha, and I think she's, she shed a lot of light on the discussion in the sense that Islamophobia, Islamophobia can be um, woven into society in Definitely. so many different ways. And that actually, there's so many different um, paths that you can take, in essence. Have you experienced or should you experience Islamophobia? I think one thing she shed a light on was the idea of um, being Muslim and perceived and when people are perceived as Muslim I mean that's something that I didn't really consider mm. so you know that was really helpful thank you Nasha. Yeah okay so um, our next guest who's on the line right now um, is Dr. Kautar Najib um, and yeah she is a researcher visiting researcher at Newcastle University from 2016 to 2018 and a lead researcher of the SAMA project which is which stands for spaces of anti-Muslim act in Paris and London so yeah um, thank you for joining us today Dr. Kelton Najib. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you very much um, but yeah I guess the first question like we asked Naz is what does Islamophobia sort of mean to you to start off the discussion? Um, Islamophobia um, is um, discrimination or um, aggression or uh, verbal abuse um, that targets Muslims or people who are perceived as Muslim. Mm -hmm. So um, with this um, uh, perceived thing, we can understand that it, it is a form of racism. That's why mm -hmm. I totally agree with the APPG definition. So I really hope that in the future it will be accepted um, um, at the global uh, scale and notably um, in the parliament first. Uh, yeah, so I guess I'd like to ask um, really how, what is the impact of Islamophobia on people who um, have experienced it or experienced it in the workplace? What type of effect does it have? Because I guess that's the most important part is the fact that it usually has a, a negative effect on the victims. Yeah, so um, I've um, interviewed 60 victims of Islamophobia in Paris and London. And um, the victims that uh, I've interviewed were uh, mainly women and uh, veiled Muslim women mm -hmm. that were targeted because of markers of uh, Muslimness, so their uh, hijab most of the time. Mm -hmm. And um, the impact can be um, on their spatial mobility, but also on uh, their behaviors. So they started to develop new behaviors, new mobility in order to avert potential situations of Islamophobia. Um, and um, because I work in France and in the UK, I am able to compare um, how the victims react. Mm -hmm. um, at the moment, I, am, I have more analyzed material for France Mm. So, um, in France, the majority of Islamophobic acts happen in um, public institutions um, and there are discrimination. And um, in the UK, it, it, it is different. Um, it is more about abusive behaviors, um, notably verbal abuse, abuses oh. that happen in public areas and public transport. Um, so the victims are more um, likely to be passers by and shoppers in the UK and more students in France um, because it's related to the French policy um, mm. and notably the 2004 law banning the headscarf in public schools um, that can be seen fostering such institutionalized discrimination. Mm. But in, in terms of um, impact, 
Um, I've personally noticed that, notably in Paris, that well Muslim women avoid um, central districts, privileged districts, crowded districts. So they started to, they prefer to stay um, in known uh, spaces, uh, notably mm-hmm. their neighborhoods. And in terms of behaviors, we have different women. Um, they're reacting in their own way. Some of some of them um, decided to appear like to to constantly show a positive image. So they smile a lot. Um, they appear very sociable mm. in order to reassure the person who stare at them in, in negatively. Um, there are others who are more combative and they want to show that uh, they have the right to be Muslim, they have the right uh, to be religious and to wear the hijab and um, people have to uh, have to deal with them and talk with them. And, and, and others, respect them. Um, yeah, exactly. And others um, are more discreet. So either they are, uh, it's because they are more um, uh, less confident or because uh, of um, uh, they just want protection. They just, uh, they they are just cared about um, the consequences. Mm -hmm. So some of them start to hide their hijab um, under their hooded coat, for example. Um, They started to... Uh, go outside. They be accompanied with relatives or friends. They don't go out alone. Oh, so um, it really is affecting the, the way that they, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. live there their everyday real, life. There is a real behavior. There is a real impact on their behaviors. Yeah. Um, we are coming to the end of our first half, but we'd love to continue talking with you after the break. And we hope that everyone joins us after the break. So yeah, Samanikum. You're listening to an Inspire FM podcast making available our popular programs from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamu alaikum everyone and welcome back to Sister Speak. Um, so before the break we were basically talking about um, Islamophobia and generally what it is. Um, we are joined by, we should be joined by Dr. Kauta Najib, um, just to give you a bit of background information. Uh, Dr. Kauta is a researcher at Newcastle University um, and she's the lead researcher of the SAMA project, which is Spaces of Anti-Muslim Acts uh, in Paris and London. Um, Dr. Kauta, assalamu alaikum, are you still there? Technical difficulties. <laughs> can you hear me? Yeah, we yeah. can hear you. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're joined by Dr. Kalta. She joined us before the break and we were having quite a deep discussion. I'm going to hand it over to Mariam for the final question. Yeah. So you talked about how um, the way it impacts uh, French Muslims um, and you talked about how Muslims are expected to perform in a certain way. So they have to exhibit more happier um, and, and they feel they can't go to... Um, public spaces. But my question is because you've researched in England and France and you're able to recognise and distinguish the differences, do you think there's a different perception of how um, Muslims are received in England and as opposed to France? Yes, there is. uh, Islamophobia is very different in the UK than in uh, France. Um, In the UK, it happens mostly um, in public areas while in France it happens in public institutions. So I feel like the, the phenomenon is more an institutionalized uh, 
phenomenon in France mm. based on the 2004 law uh, banning the headscarf in public schools so, uh, because this uh, law, in fact, um, it, it, it leads to uh, abusive um, mm. and, um, um, yes, an abusive interpretation of this law because there are people who think that they have the right to um, mm. um, extend the scope of this law. Uh, mm -hmm. to all the users of public institutions and public services, but it's not the case. It's not for all the users. It's only for young girls who go uh, to high school. But some people use this law in order mm -hmm. to um, put certain domination, exacerbated by a false and abusive interpretation of uh, the 2004 law. And um, even some employers, prohibit the wearing of religious signs in the internal re regulation, uh, which mm. can be under uh, certain conditions illegal. So for Muslim women uh, to find a job in France, it is very difficult because mm. they have I to... I can imagine. Um, they have to cope with first the law and also the abusive interpretation of the law. Mm. And um, because of that, um, I saw that uh, I've, I've met uh, 33 interviewees in France and they experienced obviously uh, Islamophobic acts um, in public mm. institutions but also at their workplace. And um, what I can say is that um, at the conclusion that my work is highlighting um, the fact that the place of Islamophobia and it's it, it is even more obvious when focusing on the on workplace um, that describe a certain domination and um, this the, the hierarchy that we can find in the social professional and administrative environment can add a certain legitimacy to this type of illegal act so the perpetrator can feel more comfortable and empowered to mm. act in a certain mm. way and more justified a in a sense yeah um, while in the UK we don't have this, um, it, it's not the same climate. Um, mm. In the UK uh, there is a lot of law um, protecting minority groups. There is mm. a lot of law um, that promotes inclusion, uh, more inclusion and more diversity at workplace and in different places. Um, there is no law prohibiting uh, the veil um, in the big uh, schools and institutions so the Islamophobia is, is should be in another place and it's not in institution it's in the public uh, space and public transport so it's more about um, people uh, than institutions in the UK mm. so it's yeah but that's somewhat well, I guess they're both very serious because they both affect the way in which yeah. we all live in that sense. Because, you know, exactly. you, you going to uh, a public space, you want to feel safe and you want to feel uh, like you can live out your everyday life. Like you don't want to always have to be putting up a show. And the fact that uh, Islamophobia in itself has a particular impact or effect in the sense that it can affect the way we behave, it's quite, mm. it's quite scary, you know. What do you yeah, think? I mean, in both cases, it's, it is serious because mm. um, the public space is um, concerned, is affected yeah. at the end of the day. Uh, so there is a real concern on how mm. uh, Muslims look 
um, Muslims look in, in either at workplace or a public institution or public areas like uh, parks um, or public transport or in any case it's, uh, it's a very serious issue serious that issue. affects uh, people's lives. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, thank you, Dr. Kautanaji, for joining us today. We very appreciated your input into the discussion. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so our next um, guest that we're going to be joined by is uh, Homer Wilson. Homer is a partner at Hodge and Jones. Hodge Jones and Alan Solicitor, sorry about that. Um, she specialises in employment law with a particular focus on high value and complex uh, discrimination claims. Um, but first things first, I want to say um, to any of you guys listening out there, if you've ever experienced Islamophobia in any way and you want to share that experience or you want to discuss it or yeah, join in on the discussion, do call in uh, on 01582481822 or text in on 0777948182 and we're also live on Facebook so you can comment underneath our Facebook live stream. Um, but yeah, we are joined by Homer Wilson today. Um, thank you for joining us. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Um, so I guess uh, first things first, like we've asked everyone else. Actually, I just want to ask first, um, Islamophobia in the workplace, is it a very common um, thing in that sense? Well, um, I think far there's certainly the research suggests that mm. it is. And there have been a couple of relatively recent reports into this area including um, there was one in 2017 and there was a 2016 report by the women and equality select committee which really did sort of identify that muslim women in particular um, mm -hmm. are at a disadvantage in the workplace both in securing securing work and once they're in work in terms of the opportunities available to them promotions mm -hmm. and pay and you know i've been doing this for over 13 years now and it, it is, and as you said, I specialise in discrimination. So perhaps I always I see things when they get to their very worst um, okay. for people. Mm. Um, but certainly, I have seen an increase in uh, Muslims complaining of unfair treatment, discrimination on grounds of their religion within the workplace. Mm. So, what? How would you say you know Muslims in general should go go around tackling this if they feel that? they have been discriminated against or they have uh, experienced Islamophobia. What do you think, you know, on a, on, a, on a personal level, individual level, but also as a society, what can we do in order to sort of... Um, Mitigate this problem. Yeah. I think, I, I think sort of a lawyer, with my lawyer's hat on, the answer would be, um, you know, the law is there to protect people. And uh, under the Equalities Act, it is unlawful for an mm. employer to discriminate against someone on grounds of um, their religion. So if you are being treated unfairly, um, you know, you don't get a job because you wear a headscarf or you're not being promoted, um, then mm. in theory, the law is there to protect you. And the first step, I normally advise clients, the first sort of step, um, if you've got a complaint against your employer, is to put it in writing, uh, is to raise a grievance. And your employer would be obliged to investigate that complaint mm. and the kind of things you're sort of getting down on paper is you know what the examples of unfair treatment are why you think you've been discriminated against um point to any witnesses what was said 
um, mm. and, and the employer is obliged to then investigate that. And ultimately, you know, as I said, um, it is unlawful. So you could enforce your rights in the employment tribunal. So uh, your claim would be against the organisation, but if there have been colleagues who've made uh, sort of remarks about you, yes. discriminated against you, used sort of um, discriminatory language, you could also bring a claim against them and the employer would be vicariously liable for anything said or done by them. Um, I think the problem is that a lot of people, and this isn't just for, uh, this isn't just um, in respect to Muslims, when people are facing discrimination within the workplace, it's very difficult for them to even sort of admit to themselves that mm. their treatment might mm. be um, on grounds of whatever it is, religion or race. Mm. And it, because it's less overt, you know, yes, I have definitely. had cases where people have been called terrorists, they've been asked about wow. their views on ISIS, you know, persistently. But but, but most of the time, it's, it's um, sort of unconscious bias. So someone, definitely. we've got an interview panel and they see a hijabi, and, you know, I wear a hijab, so I've had sort of similar experiences myself, mm. and they... Um, they may not get the role and they may be the mm. best candidate for the role because the employer uh, consciously or unconsciously doesn't see them as fitting in mm. into their organisation. And it's very difficult to sort of um, tackle that because mm. there's very little that you can do. The onus is on organisations to sort of uh, educate their own staff and to even mm. recognize unconscious bias mm. to, to, to sort of be able to you know, the first step is to recognizing for mm. organizations when they're interviewing when they're promoting the way that they recruit as well is to sort of um make their organization more sort of open and friendly um in those at those sort of various stages so re recruitment promotion etc um, I have a question for you. So, you know, you talk about how we should recognise um, when we are facing Islamophobia. But, for example, I'm an undergrad, and you know, if if I'm when, when I'm applying for roles and I eventually get into the workplace, and I have colleagues that say remarks that make me uncomfortable, and it it leans towards Islamophobia because I feel they are attacking my religion, but it's in a very casual and covert way. How would I um, take the next step in trying to report this? Because I would feel that they said it in a casual conversation and everyone was laughing and it was deemed as a joke. Um, yeah. I, it's, I think that's, that's the, where the, it's a very blurry line because... And that, that type of situation is quite common though, isn't it? It's very common. And so, you know, we talk about how, you know, institutionally they should recognise the unconscious bias. But I think it's also educating ourselves, knowing what, what is unacceptable and identifying um, whether we are a victim of Islamophobia. And how would you say we would recognise that? I mean, the example that you gave sounds like, sounds like it would be quite sort of overt examples of discrimination. And unfortunately, those are the examples that I see a lot. So it's where colleagues make remarks and they try and pass it off as sort of quote-unquote banter. Hmm. Actually, the law deals with that quite sort of firmly because that would amount to discrimination and hmm. the sort of within the umbrella of discrimination is something called harassment. So if someone wow. makes remarks, does something or says something which um, 
have the intention of creating a hostile, intimidating environment. Mm. Even if it doesn't have the intention, creates a hostile, intimidating environment, which is exactly what you've described. I mean, if other people are laughing, people have said things and they're sort of, you know, your your religion is being targeted. I think Mm. absolutely that would be a classic example of harassment under the, the Equality Act. And it is unlawful. And the first step is definitely to raise that in writing with Mm. the employer and to say, look, this needs to be investigated. This is unacceptable. And Mm. the employer should then interview that person, interview the witnesses and take appropriate action. Because, you know, uh, when I sort of said that um, it's, it's not exactly rare, but it's not that common to see overt examples of discrimination within Mm. the workplace. What is so the examples that you gave actually they are um, they're not that that common. The common examples are where someone is sidelined, um, and you know they they're treated differently. So for mm-hmm. example, if they make a request for annual leave, or they ask um, colleagues to cover for them when they're on holiday, or whatever it may be, employer or co- or their line managers are less likely to sort of shows them flexibility compared to mm. colleagues who, for example, are, you know, a non-Muslim colleague, for example. Mm. And those are the examples that's more difficult because someone's left thinking, well, is it just me or is it mm. because I'm a Muslim? Now, either way, if you've got a concern that you might be subjected to sort of different treatment or you're being bullied, um, and those examples of being sidelined, left out of team lunches, for example, not get invited um, mm. when other team members are invited to various sort of outings, let's say, um, those might not be overtly sort of on grounds of your religion, but that kind of it kind of builds up a picture, mm. and that is still something that would amount to potentially amount to bullying within the workplace. And most employers have. Um, policies on bullying and if you sort of got a copy of that policy from HR that should set out quite clearly what mm-hmm. you should do in that instance and it's usually you know we usually identify that you put your complaint in writing this is who you send it to what then happens over so the next number of days they'll investigate it they'll hold a meeting with you they'll report back to you um, so those are the kind of steps that people can take if there are they're sort of facing these kind of problems in the workplace mm-hmm. um, you talk about how we in it's really important to take that forward and once it's going to be investigated one fear I would have if, if I reported this would it inhibit my opportunities um, climbing the ladder in the workplace and how would what advice would you give to people like me that are, that are fearful to report um, such incidents because they don't want to be um, categorized as a person that's reported Islamophobia against an institution that is well recognized well reputed um, yeah I, I, I suppose the reality is that there is always that risk but then what's the upshot of that the upshot is we kind of are so crippled by fear we do nothing and nothing mm. moves forward mm. i suppose there's got to be a uh, sort of there's got to be some kind of confidence that the employer wants to do the right thing so all these uh, tens of thousands of pounds that they spend getting policies on uh, you know anti-bullying policies policies on sexual harassment in the workplace mm. there's got to be um 
some confidence that actually they're not just doing that to pay lip service to those, you know, anti-discrimination law. They actually want to improve the workplace because if you've got a sensible organisation, they will see um, that it's in their interest to tackle these things. And and actually, what you're doing in raising the grievance is you're you're not going public with it. You're going to your employer mm-hmm. and you're in, in, in the hope that your employer will deal with it in confidence and maintain you know, deal with it in a sensitive way and confidentially. And it's in the employer's interest uh, to deal with it appropriately, promptly, and to take uh, the necessary action against the aggressor. Um, So the the hope is that companies are sort of um, aware that doing the right thing is in their own interest as well as the employee's interest. Yeah. I think that summarised it very well. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess one one question I would have is that um, I, I read an article that you've you've written in the past post. I think it was in the first of November two thousand eighteen, titled "Islamophobia in the Workplace." In that article, you Thank talk you. about a sixty five percent rise in religious hate crimes since t- two thousand and sixteen. Um, yeah. So, in terms of, well, I guess, firstly. How much of that is perhaps in in the workplace? But not only that, where do you think this sort of rise in hate crime is rooted? I guess. Um, I I think I think there was a significant sort of um, rise after the Brexit vote, um, and also I think you know not just against Muslims, just in terms of in general of, um, xenophobia yeah. generally, and just across the country. So um, we're not just talking about in the workplace, but I think if there has been such a huge spike in race crimes in a relatively short period, Mm. then it would be naive to assume that it doesn't also permeate the workplace because those people, if people, if those prejudices come out in people, they are going to come out inside work as well as outside of work. work. So I think the Brexit vote definitely had something to do with it. You know, there's been, for the past few years, there's been an increase in the far-right and anti-Muslim rhetoric by mainstream politicians as well. You know, you've only got to sort of think about the comments that Boris Johnson has made. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And that just doesn't help because when people see Muslims as the other, it makes it very easy to discriminate against them unfortunately um and i think that is that is what's been happening over the past few years yeah i i couldn't agree more um but yeah thank you thank you very much homer for joining us today um my pleasure yeah uh, it's very insightful, um, especially especially for those who are in the workplace and those who are like for us uh, undergrads that are going to be working um, very soon, um, knowing our rights and knowing how to take the steps forward to ensure that you know we're protected and we're not in becoming victims of Islamophobia. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's such an important point, because if I could just end on a positive sure. note, talking <laughs> about really grim statistics, I, I think, you know, as Muslims, we have a lot to contribute. And if we sort mm. of focus on the negatives, then we really sort of almost um, elect ourselves out, you know, we take ourselves out of the mm. race. And mm. I think, you know, things are improving, and they can only improve if we... Um, are in the race and we contribute and we're seen as contributing so contributing to the debate contributing to sort of society mm. generally and the workplace um, 
So thank you for having this discussion. Thank you. It's very useful. Thank yeah. you, Homa. Thank you very much. My thank pleasure. You. Okay, bye. <laughs> bye bye. Thank you. Thank you. So yeah, that was that was extremely insightful. Yeah, she she talks about how and I like how she ended it because it's about representation. We need to infiltrate the sectors to make sure that we are, our voices are heard. And you know, we don't people have stereotypes and prejudices because they don't know us and they they hear about us, but they don't have that first hand experience. And I think it's really important, as she said, is to infiltrate those sectors and contribute um, to those debates and um, be contributors. And the debates because I feel mm. like uh, loads of people were very quick to shy away from discussion that's, mm. a, that's a very general statement but I mean it's it's very easy to not mm. even talk about the problem but the point is is if there is a problem there then we should talk about it and especially with things like this I think a, a somewhat how do I say it on a on a more one-to-one I guess mm. individual basis if you're in a workplace and you're facing Islamophobia um, like Mariam said that uh, actually a lot of Islamophobia comes from the fact that people have stereotypes they haven't really interacted mm. with uh, Muslims personally before and I guess in that sense it could also be up to us to sort of change that perception um, and it's so it's a less direct way of tackling the issue but again you know everything comes down to sort of misunderstandings I guess in that sense um, and yeah the, the point of the matter is, is that if you are facing discrimination in the workplace, there are pathways open to you mm-hmm. to go down. And we sort of discussed a few of those in the show. I hope they were helpful. I think it's really important to recognise that you could be a victim of Islamophobia mm. because, you know, as we discussed, there's covert and overt types of Islamophobia. And um, I think we are quite reluctant to voice those incidents that happen to us or those interactions and you know personally for me you know it'll be shocking because some of the things that was mentioned on the show and I I took it very casually because what and I experienced it myself and it it just sheds light on how we are so we become so tolerant to unacceptable behavior because we don't know um, and we don't know how to identify that this is wrong yeah I agree um and the point being made that we don't realise how serious it mm. actually is because the the research, a lot of the research done by Dr. Kauta Najib, who joined us on the show, um, you know, she was talking about the fact that it, it can affect us mm. and the way we behave and the way we live. That isn't That's astonishing. Fair. That's and, not and, acceptable. And it's, it's what she said was how uh, French Muslims have to perform um, in a certain way because they want to be accepted. Or, or some of them feel... Or some way. of them feel that they can't work uh, or go in the private sector, or private, uh, not private, public space because they are going to be attacked or they're going to be verbally abused. Well, I think in general, you know, it makes sense. Like if, if you feel like you're going to be in danger, then you're going to take the appropriate mm. steps. But the point is, is why? Why should, should we feel we in danger feel that way? for being for identity? Exactly. And and that's another aspect. And I guess that's the reason why that that having a specific definition for Islamophobia that takes into account all these mm. different aspects and the ways it can manifest is so important for it to be broad. Because uh, the point is, is it can come in discrete ways, it can come in more mm. open ways, but, you know, there's, there's so many different ways. And I think that... that what I would say um, coming through the end of the show is that it's really important to educate yourself in mm. knowing that you could be vulnerable and you could become a victim of Islamophobia and you shouldn't shy away from reporting it. But even if you're not Muslim as well. And even if you're not Muslims and also protect each other. I think we need to you know broaden ourselves. It's not just Muslims that are facing these um, hate crimes. It's 
people that are perceived as Muslims. Muslim. And I think we need to branch out to those people as well. Exactly. But yeah, thank you very much for listening and thanks to all our guests for joining us and we'll join you next week, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Why not tune in to our live stream at inspirefm.org and follow and subscribe to our social media platforms at InspireFM Luton.